So how are we doing, Metro? Boy, am I glad that you are here. Metro is one church with two campuses, and so if you are joining us via video at our Riverview campus this weekend, we are so stoked that you are here, aren't we, Metro? Yeah. So let me ask a quick question. How many of you have made plans that didn't quite work out the way that you planned? Anybody? I mean, like you got this dream, you got this idea, and you're like, we're going for it, and then it just, the wheels come off. Anybody? I remember it was about six or seven years ago, uh, Lynette and I finally upgraded our lives from the old dumpy minivan to a brand new SUV. We bought a brand new black Chevy Traverse, and it was beautiful. And so, and things are going to be different, right? Like when you get something new, you're like, it, we are not going back, right? We are, we're like moving forward. And so like we lay down the rules for the kids. We're like, there is no food and no drink in this car. This means that there is, when I say no food, that means no, no fast food, no quick food, no snack food. We're talking no food, no drink in the car. It is going to be different this time around. Anybody with me on that? You get something and you're like, we're, we're going forward, not backwards anymore. And so we were so excited. We pick up the car and uh, we park it in the garage. First day. So excited. First day. Next day comes around. The very first day we we're actually going to use it. It's for Lynette. It's for the kids. Uh, I'm gone at work and, and she goes out to the, to, to the vehicle and did I mention it's a brand new Chevy Traverse? Anybody? Did I mention that? So it is brand new and it's in the garage. Okay, and, and so they're all piled in, and they are so excited, and all the kids are ooh and ah, and I already told them the rules. I said, listen, no food, no drink. You are going to take your shoes off before you get in that car. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You keep your grimy little hands off the windows, off the doors. I mean, you like sit in that seat, and it better be like, you look forward, and you smile. Like, you smile. Like, this is going to be Different. Anybody know what I'm talking about? When you get something new, you want it to be different than what you had before. And so you're like, you're working it, right? So first day, before we even get out of the garage, before Lynette loads up the kids, they're all getting ready to go. And my then seven-year-old Lincoln, he's like, oh, I don't feel so good. First, did I mention this was a brand new vehicle? And no kidding, he turns toward his little brother, then six-year-old, little Isaac, and he proceeds to full-scale vomit all over Isaac's head, face. Isaac is throwing it everywhere, and Lincoln is just everywhere. The car is covered. We didn't even make it out of the garage. Man. This is just a little funny reminder of how life works, right? Because all of us have made plans, and it just doesn't go according to plan, does it? And I would venture to say that there are a whole bunch of us in this room who would actually say it like this, that almost nothing goes according to plans. Because, like, you're thinking, I thought I would be married by now, or at least have a girlfriend by now, right? Or, or guy friend, right? I, I thought I had a promotion by now. I thought I was going to be retired by now or at least have a 401k going by now. I thought I would have kids by now. I, I, I thought I would have my own house by now. I thought I would have a different kind of a life by now. Or, or maybe it, you, you thought I wasn't supposed to go bankrupt. I never planned on going bankrupt. I never planned on getting a divorce. I never planned for cancer. I never planned to be a single mom or a single dad. 
It's like somewhere along the way, the wheels just came off. So what do you do when life doesn't go according to plans? What do you do? I want to read to you um, probably one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. And it is definitely the most famous passage from the book of Jeremiah. And just let these words penetrate your soul just a little bit. Jeremiah 29, 11, it says it like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord God. Plans, right? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and to give you a future. And friends, let me tell you something. These are amazing words to me. As a Christian, these are fire me up sort of words. You know what I'm talking about? They are fire me up sort of words because God's talking about my future and the hope he wants to give me, the plans that he has. He has something big for me. Notice that God doesn't say though, he doesn't quite say it like that. He says, uh, God does not say, uh, for I know the plans that you have for you. He doesn't say, and I'm really impressed with those plans, by the way. I think they're super great plans. And if I could just somehow weasel me into your little schedule, to your little agenda, that would just be wonderful. If I, me, God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, the God who is sovereign over all of the world, if somehow, if I could just get into your plans, that would just be a delight of my heart. God does not say that, does he? He says, no, 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 no. I have a plan for you. You think you got a good plan. You got like a Friday night, like we're going out Friday night. It is going to be a big night Friday night. And he's like, I just think that's a great little plan you got. I hope it goes well for you. But my plan is just so much bigger. If you would just take a moment and get onto my page, it would go very, very well for you. I got plans for you. And I got big sort of plans for you. Let me tell you something that I have learned about the Bible. And this is amazing, and uh, this is absolutely true. God is always interrupting somebody's plan. Come on. Anybody feel that? God is always interrupting somebody's plan. I mean, right from the very beginning, you do realize that uh, Adam never planned that Eve would screw it all up. Just relax, I'm kidding, right? But, but, but it's true, Abraham, uh, Abraham never planned that he would father a child when he was 90 years old and would become the father of many nations, right? A great nation called Israel. Uh, Noah never planned to build an ark. Esther did not plan on having to stop a genocide of her people, right? Uh, Moses did not have a plan to have to stand up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on planet earth at the time. Gideon never planned on leading an army and neither did Caleb and neither did Joshua. Never planned for it. Mary did not plan to have an angel of God visit with her and for her to get pregnant with the son of God. Never planned it. Not a single story in the entire story of faith found in the Bible begins with, then some human being had a great plan. Do you hear me? There's not one story of greatness in the scripture 
that changed eternity, that changed the human movement, that changed the story of life. There's not one time that it ever says, then some human had a wonderful idea, a great plan. No. God says, I have a plan, and it would be wise of you to get onto my agenda. Now, we're in this series called Old School, and if you uh, have been around, it's our study of the Old Testament part of the Bible. We visit it from time to time, and uh, we spend 8, 9, 10, 12 weeks in the Old Testament part of the Bible, and some of you are going, oh, that's lovely. What in the world? That's crazy. No, no, no. I think uh, it is far more exciting than it sounds. I really do. And I think it sounds, it, it's far more relevant than it sounds. I really do. Some of you have been around, and you, I think, could say the same thing, that, that these words that we're, that we're reading and learning from, that were written literally thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, they could have been written last night or last week because they are relevant to our lives today. Anybody with me on this? Yeah. And, and so we are in the current section of Scripture where we're looking at a great man. And I mean, he is a great man. His name is Jeremiah. And the book written... Uh, that covers his life is called the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet from God. And Jeremiah uh, lived about 2,600 years ago, about 600 years before the time of Christ. And I don't know about you, but if you've traveled a little bit through this part of our journey through Jeremiah with me, um, maybe you're like me. I have come uh, to really love this man named Jeremiah. I have just... In my soul, I've, I've connected with him in a way that I really didn't think I would as we entered this journey. Uh, you see, Jeremiah is a man who's had a difficult life and a very uh, long struggle. But he wanted to be faithful to God. Jer Jeremiah is a man who uh, knows what it's like to be let down, to be betrayed. He knows how difficult it is, and yet he still wants to honor God. He still wants to feel in his soul. He still wants to learn to trust God, even though so much of life has not turned out like he planned. And I don't know about you, um, but I just connect with that. Um, this little part of our journey through the Old Testament has become very personal to me. Uh, and, I, and I think it has to some of you as well. Be, because you know what it's like to try to find faith when the wheels come off in life. When it's hard. When the journey is long. And when the journey is difficult. Amen? Amen. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to uh, lead us uh, in prayer tonight and then jump into uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 together. Okay? Let me pray. So, God, I pray that your spirit would visit with us at both campuses right now. In this very room, in this very space, uh, we have come not to hear from men. We've come to hear from you. So I pray, God, that our spirit would be open to you, no matter where we are in faith right now. Even if we are just at the front end of faith and we're not even sure you are real. God, I think I can pray for all of us. We collectively want to hear from you. That's why we are in church. So, Spirit of God, 
we say speak, for your child is listening. Amen? Amen. Whew, are you guys ready? One of the things that we like to do in the old school series is we want to make the history surrounding the scripture come alive a little bit. We want to fill you in on the backstory. And I think to understand Jeremiah chapter 29, you have to know the backstory of what Jeremiah is talking about and where he is coming from in order for this to really come alive to you. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone, I would love for you to find Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. Just Google it. It'll appear by magic and uh, you can also, if you have an old-fashioned Bible, do you know those things still work? <laughs> Did you know that? It's amazing. Those old things with pages and writing on them, they still work. And so if you have one of those, we'll turn the lights up a little bit for you. But I would love for you to find Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. And while you do that, let me tell you this. Uh, you may know this. In the ancient world, all of the nations worshipped their own gods. Uh, they were like kingdom gods. They were like neighborhood gods. And, and, and the idea, the general understanding was that the better a nation was, the better the god was. Uh, the, more, the, the more powerful, the, 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 the more prosperous, the more wealthy, the more in control a nation was, the more powerful and prosperous and in control their god was. Does that make sense? And so if a nation was doing really, really well, they must have a really, really good God. And if a nation was doing very, very poor, they needed a new God. They had to get somebody different. And, and so this kind of thinking, even though God never wanted them to think this way, this kind of thinking settled into the people of Israel. Uh, the people of God had this unique relationship with God, a covenant sort of a relationship with God. One that they thought that, 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 said that God was going to make them into a great nation because they were a great, serving a great God. And because God was great, it didn't really matter how they lived because that was their God. God was going to protect them and serve them and take care of them and make them into a great people. But here is what happened. Some of you may know the backstory a little bit. This is very interesting. Uh, it goes way back to the time of Moses. Uh, the people of Israel were living in slavery in the land of, anybody know? Egypt. Say Egypt. Okay, just pretend you're tracking with me, okay? And uh, so they're down here in the land of Egypt. And uh, uh, God raises up a deliverer. His name is Moses, right? And Moses eventually leads them out of slavery and uh, into what is called the promised land. And so it was very much like this, uh, up and to the right. I don't know if you follow the stock market, but if you invest at all, you want your stocks to go up and to the right. Does that make sense? Because when it's up and to the right, that means your stock is getting better and better and better and more valuable every single week. And so as they journeyed with Moses through this uh, wilderness experience, God comes through in some pretty extraordinary ways. Every time they face an enemy, the enemy falls. Uh, they come up to a river, the river parts. Eventually, God literally makes them into a great nation. And things just keep going up and up and to the right. And eventually, God brings him a king. Anybody remember the first king? His name was Saul, right? Well, things didn't turn out so good for Saul. Uh, God removes Saul and says, you're not leading the people like I told you to lead the people. And so God replaces King Saul with another king named David, right? And so David comes along and he does a great job and he unites the people of Israel, all the 12 tribes of Israel and becomes a great kingdom. And it just grows and grows and grows up into the right. And eventually David dies and he has a son named Solomon, right? 
And Solomon comes along and takes the kingdom even further. And, and, and these were the, what we would, we would call the glory days of Israel. It was a united kingdom, prosperous, doing well. All the other nations feared them. God seemed to be blessing them in every way. Well, after Solomon's death, it starts to tank. It's like the stock market dives, right? And what happens is, is that under Solomon's children, David's grandchildren, the kingdom actually splits in two. At around 930 BC, 930 BC, two things happen. The, the, the kingdom is divided, and now we have one, we have a northern kingdom, and we have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah, or the southern kingdom of Israel. And these two people, even though they are really brothers, they can't get along. They have different rulers. They're always fighting with each other. Uh, they just can't get along. And it goes terribly south. I mean, it just falls off the board. Then this outside empire arises in, in around 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire, you, you ever hear of these guys, the Assyrians? The Assyrians come along and they literally take over so much of the world and they crush the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom, the, the northern kingdom. And uh, the, the southern kingdom miraculously survives. And the northern kingdom, though, absolutely is destroyed. They are no more, never to rise again. And so the remaining part of Israel is the southern kingdom here, right? And what's interesting about the southern kingdom, it kind of uh, treks along a little bit until the year about 630. Uh, in 650 BC, there is a young boy born. His name is Jeremiah. And around 630 BC, Jeremiah starts his wonderful ministry to the people of Israel. And his ministry was very simple. You guys suck. We're going down. We're sinning like crazy. You better turn or it will not end well for you. And he begins this over and over and over. And finally, in around 586 B.C., 586 B.C., uh, a king named King Nebuchadnezzar leads the Babylonian Empire uh, southward out of what is now called Iraq and Iran area, moves them southward and slightly uh, westward toward Israel and utterly destroys the southern kingdom, tears down their walls and marches off a small remnant of people. He kills a whole bunch of people, but he marches off a remnant to, to Babylon, takes some of the brightest and the most skilled people into captivity. He literally enslaves them. And this is really important to understand because as we uh, enter chapter 29, it's going to seem confusing for you, but I need to insert some history and it will pop for you. It'll all make sense if we keep this in mind, okay? So y'all with me on this so far, right? And so Israel's destroyed, but before that time, we're gonna learn that there are already some Israelites who have been taken into captivity. Now, uh, they are living in captivity. Uh, they are in a radically different culture. They're in a radically different society. Uh, they have different values, uh, different gods, and life is just horrible for the people of Israel. The, the, the fall of the southern kingdom and moving them into exile was literally the worst tragedy that's ever happened to the people of Israel. And it's the worst tragedy for this reason. It's not because Jerusalem's destroyed. It's not because the temple is destroyed. 
It's not because they lost their homes and many, many, many people were killed. It's not because they were even uh, exiled out of their land. The reason this is the worst tragedy in their history is because it makes them question God himself. Because God had promised to be their God and to make them into a great nation. So now the people are going, does this God even exist? Or is this just one big myth that our grandparents told us about? Are we believing a lie? And this is why the, there are these odd verses that pop up for some of you Bible type of people out there who have read uh, different parts of the scripture. There are these different parts that talk about Babylon because this was such a monumental event in their history that other writers talked about this over and over again. As a matter of fact, there is this passage in the book of Psalms, chapter 137. Now, most of the book of Psalms was written way before this ever happened, way before it. But there are scattered Psalms, particularly at the end of the book of Psalms, that were dropped in by different writers throughout Israel's entire history. And this particular writer is writing during the time of exile into Babylon, and it's found in the book of Psalms, chapter 137. And I just want to read a couple of verses to you because this is how the people of Israel are thinking at this point. It says this, by the rivers of Babylon, by the rivers of where? Babylon. We sat and we wept when we remembered Jerusalem. So they're sitting around fishing by the water. I don't know what they're doing by the water, but they're sitting by the water and they just can't help but think of home. Because everything has been taken from them. And so they weep over this, right? And, and that makes sense. It makes sense, right? And, and then it says, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us songs of Zion. And so picture this. You know, the Babylonian lords would come and say, you Jewish people are good singers and musicians. Sing us a song. Sing us a good Jewish song, right? Make us happy. It better be a happy song. And look how the people of Israel responded to this. It says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You see the problem, right? It's how can God be good when things are so bad? Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, how can we sing for joy? How can we pull out the guitar and, and sing a couple of worship songs when God seems to have abandoned us? When things are so dark, everything that we planned has come unraveled. And this is a big problem, a big problem. And so one day, a letter arrives in Babylon from none other than Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to track with me on this. A letter writes, and we find this letter in Jeremiah chapter 29. And the question is, is who has been warning the people of Israel for years and years? Who's been warning? It's not a trick question. What's his name? Jeremiah. Right? He's been saying, you better change, you better knock it off, you better give your hearts to God or it will not end well for you. So Jeremiah is now writing them this amazing little letter to the people who are exiled in, in Babylon. And when they get this letter from old Jeremiah, the male guy comes and says, hey, I got a post from, you, from a guy named Jeremiah who's living in Jerusalem and it's addressed to the remnant who are living in exile. In Babylon. So what kind of letter do you think the people living in exile in Babylon are going to get from Jeremiah? What do they think Jeremiah is going to say? I told you so, right? They're expecting that I told you so. You have been mocking me 
for 20 years. You have been laughing at me. Do you remember when you had me arrested and beaten and been put in stocks? You did not listen to me. I told you so, right? That's the kind of letter they expect. But that's not the kind of letter they got at all. This is an incredibly unexpected letter from Jeremiah. And before we read it, though, I need to answer an obvious question that some very smart people in the room are, are asking themselves. How is a letter addressed to the Babylonian exiles from Jeremiah while Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was supposed to be utterly destroyed, killed, and the remainder marched off in exile, right? That's a fair question. Well, what's interesting is King Nebuchadnezzar comes to power about 30 years prior to this. Uh, somewhere around 610 BC, he starts, the Babylonian Empire's you know, in full mode, and the Assyrian Empire was in full decline at this point, and the Babylonians are picking off the remaining parts of the Assyrian Empire. Who was taken in 722? The northern kingdom of Israel. And so now, as the Assyrian Empire that took the northern kingdom is starting to fall, the, this new guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, is going from village to village, city to city, and he's taking part of the northern kingdom's territory particularly and the northern outskirts of the southern kingdom. And what he's doing is those he does not kill, he takes into Babylon as captive, as slaves, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Now, what's really interesting is this occurs around 605 BC. When Jeremiah writes chapter 29, it is approximately 605 BC. And history records it as what they call the first wave of exile, the first wave of the exiles. King Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed many parts of the northern kingdom and the northern territories of the southern kingdom, and he's taken some people. Now, for you Bible study type of people out there, let me ask you a question. Does a guy named Daniel and the story of Daniel in the lion's den sound familiar to you? Anybody? Okay. How about the story of... Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Anybody? Okay. Does anybody remember where those took place? The city of Babylon. The city of Babylon. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were part of the 605 first wave of exiles. And so Jeremiah is writing to these exiles. And he is saying, Guys, it's not what you think. The story of God is not done. Listen, listen. I want you to think about this. Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some of the great, great men of faith, great women of faith, they, they heard Jeremiah's words. They were probably the, among those sitting by the side of the river when this letter comes, and they're going, who's this from? Oh, this is from Jeremiah. Yeah, we didn't listen to him back then. But now, if you know the story of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, oh, they most certainly listened then, right? Because something clicked inside of them. Something changed. And so Jeremiah writes to the exiles who have gone into Babylon in 605. And this is what he writes. Pay very careful attention. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem into where? Babylon. So he's addressing the people, right? 
He says to them, build houses and settle down and uh, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, listen, also, verse 7, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets or the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams you have encouraged them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Ready? He says, this is what God says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back into this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares God. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So Jeremiah is saying something very bold, something very uh, controversial, and something that nobody in this crowd wants to hear. So when you think about this idea of exile, There are really two ways to go about it. And think about being a people group who's taken into another land and you are under the total domination of somebody else. There's really only two options for you. Uh, One option is to assimilate, right? One option is to assimilate. Now, what makes the Babylonian Empire so unique? Everybody dial in on this. This is so important. What makes the Babylonians so unique is that they often did what was opposite of what was common in the ancient world. What was common is an empire would come in, they would destroy a bunch of people, and the remnant, they would tax them heavy, they would leave them and say, you better get to work and pay us taxes, and we're going to rule over you and lord over you because we conquered you. But the Babylonians didn't do that. Babylonians had a totally different uh, political idea. What they thought was, we will come and we'll destroy all those we need to destroy, we'll knock down their city, but the remnant, the brightest and the best, the brightest and the best, we are going to take and bring back to our nation, to our capital, and they are going to see what it's like to be a Babylonian. They're going to see how wealthy and prosperous and smart and good we are, and and they're going to learn our ways, they're going to learn our customs, they're going to learn about our values, and they're going to serve our gods. You see, what they were thinking was this. They were thinking that if we just leave a remnant there, and we're just brutal over them, they're always going to fight us. Right? And it makes sense. Like, if you got a big brother and your big brother's whooping you and you know your big brother can whoop you and you can't beat him back, what do you do? As soon as he turns around, you push him and you run. Right? So you're always going to be rebellious. You're just going to be smart about it. Right? And so they were sick of all these countries because I've noticed something. Like, when somebody takes over a country, the people of that country often resent it. And they didn't want to constantly fight. And so they had a different idea. If you can't beat them, join them. And it was a total different move of political history. Totally different move. And so this is what, where the, the uh, Israelis find themselves at this point. And they were, were being tempted, and the goal of Babylon was to assimilate them. But think about being a Jewish person at this point. Do you want to assimilate into Babylon? Come on, think about it. Like, if somebody comes and takes over America and takes you, I don't know, to somewhere just totally different than us, and I don't know, maybe the Middle East, where they just are totally different set of values, are you going to, like, like, be happy about that? Are you going to be like, yeah, wife and kids, go ahead. It'll be great. Just learn their ways and do what they do. No! You're like, I want nothing to do with these people. Think about, these, think about the people of Israel at this point. They were totally dominated. They destroyed their cities. They killed their parents and their friends. They, 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 they destroyed their homes. They took everything from them. 
and said, you are now going to be one of us. So how do you think that goes over? It doesn't. And the people of Israel uh, have had this long-standing tradition throughout all of their history that they would not assimilate, but they would isolate. They would not assimilate, but they would isolate. They would say, we want nothing to do with you. And Jeremiah addresses this. In his little opening part of this letter, he says, do not pay attention to the prophets and the diviners. What are the diviners? The diviners are people who say they're hearing from God and you need to listen to me. But who was the prophet from God? Come on, who? Who did God call? And who did God say was going to speak on his behalf? And so these other people were saying, oh, there's an opportunity for me to be the man. And so they're coming along as prophets and diviners, people who say that they're from God. And they're saying what the people of Israel want to hear. Jeremiah never said what the people of Israel wanted to hear. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Never said it. But these guys come along and Jeremiah says, do not listen to the people who are saying what you want to hear because what they were saying was this exile is going to be real small. It's going to be short. And one day you're going to wake up and God's going to rescue you and the Babylonians are all just going to die and they're going to fall over and you're just going to walk on home. It's going to be great. And Jeremiah says, don't listen to that because it is going to be way worse than you ever Imagine, he says, build your homes, build your gardens, uh, marry your sons and daughters. Uh, this is going to be a long, long road. He actually says, uh, it, it's going to take 70 years. Remember that? 70 years. Now, what's interesting is he does not use the language of exact time and space. He uses a phrasing that was a common way of saying, this is going to be a lifetime. So all of you who have moved from Jerusalem and now exiled into Babylon, you're going to die in Babylon. So you might as well learn to live in Babylon. You might as well get used to this because this is a long, long road ahead of you. Y'all follow me so far? And so this is what Jeremiah says. He says, um, you might as well get used to it and you, listen to me, and you can handle it. He says, because God is with you, even in exile. Um, what you need, he says, is not back in Jerusalem. He says, what you need is not back at the temple. He says, what you need is right here because God is still God in, in your Babylon. God is still God in your exile. And, and so what he says is that God is still good even in a bad place. God still has plans for you even in a horrible place. Y'all with me so far? And so he says, do not assimilate. Do not isolate but I want you to permeate your Babylon. Y'all with me? He says, I want you to permeate your, the Babylon around you. I, I don't want you to assimilate. I don't want you to look like them. I don't I want you to buy into what they believe. But also, I don't want you to, to be so out of the culture that you're not affecting the culture. I want you to permeate the world that you find yourself in. And Jesus said it like this one time, and some of you may remember this. Jesus said this. He said about our, our life in this world. He said, I want you to be salt and, and light. He says, in a world that is so tasteless, I want you to be salt. And in a world that is so dark, I want you to be light. I want you to permeate the world around you. Um, and so he tells them to build houses and raise food and, and to get married. And, and we don't have time for this right now, but we could go back into the middle of the book of Deuteronomy around chapter 20. Moses is laying out some of the ways that, that you worship God. Very interesting. And Moses says... The way you worship God is reflected in the way you build your houses, plant your gardens, and marry off your children. 
In other words, the way that you do life is the way that you worship God. Not because you sit in chairs like this and go, oh, I just love this song. That is not worship. He says worship is the way that you build your life. And so the people of Israel knew that Jeremiah was directly referencing the law of Moses or the writings of Moses, saying you better be prepared to worship God because you can, you can worship God in your Babylon. You can worship God where, where you think God has abandoned you. You can worship God where you think that God has left you alone. And since you didn't get it right while you were in Jerusalem, listen to me, friends. Look at me for a second, everybody. On video, listen to me. Because maybe you didn't get it right while you were in Jerusalem when it was all good for you. Maybe you'll get it right right now. You hear me? Let me ask you a question. When does God speak loudest to you? Is it when everything is good? I don't think so. I think God sometimes drives us into exile. Sometimes God allows these dark seasons of life to get our attention. He said, I tried to get your attention when it was good and fine. But maybe you'll listen to me now when you're in exile, while you're in your Babylon. I think God wants to speak. And so um, the God of Israel is also the God of Babylon, Jeremiah is saying. Uh, but they don't yet know it. The Babylonians hope to assimilate the people of God into their kingdom, but God wants to assimilate the Babylonian kingdom into God's kingdom. You see? God says, I'm going to be used, and I'm going to get my presence known wherever my people are. And, and he says, I want you to live in Babylon with God in such a way that you love him, that you follow him because because when you love somebody and you're with somebody you love, life is simply better, right? No matter what Babylon you're in, no matter what your struggle is, when you're doing it with the God that you love, he says you can make it through. You can be light in a very, very dark world. One of the deepest lessons that Jeremiah gives us from the beginning to the end of his book one of the deepest lessons is that uh, we can learn to live the with God life in our Babylon when things do not turn out the way that we planned. Let me say that again. This is so important. One of the deepest lessons Jeremiah gives us is that we can live the with, learn to live the with God life even when things don't turn out as planned. That his plans are bigger. And sometimes we don't see his plans in action. But we can still learn to live with God. Uh, one of the deepest lessons that Jesus taught us is very similar. Jesus said it like this in John's Gospel, chapter 14. Jesus himself, he says this. He says, it says Jesus replied, anyone who loves me, anyone that should uh, say with an S, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who loves me will obey me. My father will love them and he will come to them and make our home, where? In them. It says God's building into you. God's reaching towards you, always. He's never turning away from you and it may seem like dark and it may seem like Babylon to you, it may seem like exile to you, but God says, I want to come and be with you. 
Do, do you realize that this promise from Jesus is a direct promise to you? And I get it. Sometimes people go, oh, it's okay. It's, you're the preacher. You, you get this special thing with God or the worship people up on that stage is special. Or maybe the guy out in some cave in the middle of Africa who's like just totally a monk or something, that's who gets the with God life. No. It's for anyone who loves God. It's for anyone who turns toward God. It's anyone who says, God, I want to build my life with you. God says, I want to come and build in you. It works out great. I want to come and take up residence in your soul. And friends, listen to me. I, I do not understand what some of you are waiting for. You come to church all the time, and uh, you, you, you hear the message. You even say, I kind of like this Jesus guy. But you hold him at length. And you do not submit your life to him. You do not love him like you love Sunday football. You do not love him like you love a trip out to dinner. Love him. Move toward him. Submit your heart to him. And he will meet you in ways that you never even dreamed. He's got plans for you. Big, huge plans for you. So he says, do not assimilate. Do not worship their gods. Do not become like them. Do, do not do sexuality like them. Do not believe what they believe. Be different from them. But do not isolate. Do, get engaged because you are no good if you are not engaged. You know, there's this weird tension in that, isn't there? Because even as a church, as a pastor, I, I live in this tension all the time. People get mad at me all the time for voicing my opinion about things that are political. And the church should not be involved with politics. You know what the problem is, is this. The problem is this, is that the world has made political that which is really moral. And they demand that the church's voice go silent. And they, man, they demand that Christians find their little hole in the corner and stay there. But as I see the scriptures teach, it says that we are to permeate this world with grace and truth, with love and truth. Anybody with me on this? To stand up for truth, but, but to do it with love. And look, look at this. This is crazy. This is crazy. So Jeremiah writes to them in, in verse 7. He, he says, Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. And, and this is crazy talk. Think about people who are reading this letter. They're going, wait, 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 wait. You want me to bring peace and prosperity to the very people who just killed my father? My mother? Destroyed our city? You want me to bring peace and prosperity to them? You're crazy. You're crazy. And Jeremiah looks at him and writes on his little, I don't know, he just types it all out, writes it all out, and he just goes... This is going to sound crazy, but I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for the city. Um, who, who, who did they blame for carrying them off to exile? King Nebuchadnezzar, right? But what did the text say? Who brought you into exile? I brought you there because I have a plan for you there. I have something different for you there. Stop blaming them. This is what I want for you. 
And, and friends, listen, uh, he says, I want you to bring peace and prosperity to the very people who brought you war. And this is a huge message in this for us. Jeremiah says, I don't want you to assimilate in your, into the culture. There are too many temptations there. You will fall if you buy it hook, line, and sinker. But I don't want you to isolate. I want you to permeate. I want you to change that culture. And if you do, you will prosper when they prosper. You will go up when, when they go up. Now, listen, friends, I don't want you to think that Jeremiah is a uh, get-rich-off-God preacher. You know those types? Anybody know those types? Can't stand those types. He is not a get-rich-off-God preacher at all. Anybody been tracking with Jeremiah? Does he impress you as a get-rich-off-God type of guy? Not at all. Not at all. Matter of fact, what he uses is this very powerful Hebrew word to describe peace and prosperity. He uses this word called shalom. Have you heard of this word? It literally means the peace of God. He says, I want you to bring to this city shalom. <laughs> the peace of God. The prosperity from knowing the richness of God. The hope that comes from knowing God. He says, that is a whole new level of prosperity. A whole new level of riches. He says, bring shalom to the city in which I have brought you. I've given you a plan. And God is saying this. God, God is saying through Jeremiah that God cares about Israel. He has not abandoned Israel. He's going to use Israel. He, he's saying God loves Israel, but God also loves your Babylon. God also is at work in your Babylon. God has not forgotten you in your Babylon, and he has not forgotten the people of your Babylon. And so God says to you and I, and I don't know if it's just me, I look at this world sometimes, I go, it is so dark, it is so crazy, I don't know if we're going to survive. It, it, it seems like the whole world is just upside down. Wrong is right, right is wrong, right? And God says, Jeremy, God loves the people of Michigan. God loves the people of Detroit. God loves the people of Taylor, Riverview. Lincoln Park, Southgate. He loves the people of your little community that you call Downriver. I have not forgotten them. I, I love the, the kids of the Wyandotte School District and the Trenton School District. I love the people who work at Ford Motor Company. I love the people who work at your Meyer. Not so sure I love the Detroit Lions, but But God says, I love that little TV diner over on 4th Street. I love that little laundromat that they're just opening on the corner of Pennsylvania. He says, I love Chipotle. Glory to God. Right? He goes, I, I love your town. And I want you to love it as well. Seek the peace and seek the prosperity because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Not to tear you down. This dark Babylon, it's not about destroying you. It is about reconditioning your soul to turn it toward God. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you.
Learn to love God in your Babylon. Many of us have not done such a good job of loving God in our Jerusalem when things were good. Maybe we'll do a better job by being in Babylon.